Half-Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at your local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Scream 3 from 2000. Directed by Wes Craven, written by Aaron Kruger. And if I had a soundboard, this is where I'd put in the record scratch sound effect, because this is famously the first installment in the series not written by its creator, Kevin Williamson. Williamson had written a brief outline, which he appended to his initial script for Scream as an example of the directions the sequels might take, but in the wake of Scream 2, his career absolutely exploded, and the time he needed to flesh it out into a full screenplay simply wasn't there. In addition to Scream 2, 1997 saw the release of I Know What You Did Last Summer, 98 saw the release of The Faculty and the debut of Dawson Creek, and 99 saw his directorial debut teaching Mrs. Tingle, as well as another TV series, Wasteland. Even though some of those stories were screenplays he dusted off and polished after the success of Scream, that's still a hell of a workload for any writer. But the outline Williamson provided, which would have seen Matthew Lillard return as an imprisoned stew orchestrating the actions of a cult following from prison, a theme Williamson later returned to for his TV series The Following, had to be entirely thrown out just days before filming began due to a tragedy that had long-lasting effects on American culture as a whole, and the horror genre in particular, the Columbine shootings. Now, as I've said in the past, this isn't a true crime podcast, and to be honest, I don't think that much can be added to the available body of work on the subject of Columbine. It's very well documented, down to the minute in some cases, of exactly what happened to who and where. But to sum it up in its most basic form, two teenagers in Colorado named Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold killed 15 students before committing suicide in what was, at the time, the largest school shooting in American history. Despite leaving numerous journals and videotapes documenting their plans, the motives for their crime remain opaque to this day, and many at the time blamed violence in media. Oddly, the Scream series escaped major scrutiny despite being around two high school friends who planned a killing spree together, probably due to the fact that Billy and Stu never used firearms or bombs, the two major elements of Harrison Claybold's plan. But the decision was rapidly made to scrap any plot points that involved mass murder in a small town, especially as there were some legitimate copycat killings that had happened in the wake of the first Scream movie, people who explicitly said that they were inspired by Scream to perform tandem killings and go on a killing spree, and were actually using Ghostface masks. Again, those didn't receive a lot of publicity, mainly because at the trial, the judge disallowed any mention of Scream in the defense of the two teens, but these were things that were coming around and were making people very uncomfortable about the idea of filming something reminiscent of the original. Uh, as a result, the setting was changed to Hollywood, and the filming of Stab 3, a sequel to the sequel to the movie within the movie in Scream 2, meaning this film is about the making of the fictionalized version of the movie we're watching. We are deep down the rabbit hole at this point. As a result of the rush changes, Wes Craven wound up doing several uncredited rewrites to Kruger's script, some as late as the day of filming, in order to keep the movie tonally consistent with the first two Scream movies. In addition, the studio forced him to tone down the violence considerably from the previous installments, as Bill Clinton worked with the National Association of Theater Owners, the other NATO as he joked at the time, to put some teeth into the MPAA rating system by instituting a nationwide ID check policy at movie theaters. This would have an effect not just on Screen 3, but on horror as a whole that lasted well into the next decade. Prior to that, studios aimed for what was then known as a hard R, an R rating that skirted the edges of an X, or later an NC-17. The hard R was seen as a sign that the film was serious about giving moviegoers the gore and shock they demanded, and theaters looked the other way about younger teens buying tickets. That was my experience as a child. I saw a number of R-rated movies without ever having my ID checked, and on the few times when the cashiers did say something about it, an older friend simply bought the ticket for me and handed it to me right in front of them. They couldn't do anything about it, and nobody really wanted them to. 
In the wake of Columbine, though, PG-13 became the new threshold for horror in order to attract the 13- to 16-year-olds who were no longer able to buy tickets to R-rated films, and we saw the rise of the unrated Director's Cut DVD, which was marketed as containing all the gore and shock that the MPAA forced the studios to cut. Land of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, famously most of the zombies had an unrated director's cut that was much gorier. It's a strategy that's faded significantly as streaming video has created a niche for R-rated or unrated horror, but it's important to remember both to get a sense of the environment that Screen 3 was walking into and for future episodes that deal with post-Columbine horror. The movie once again stars Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott, although her filming time was drastically reduced thanks to her work on Party of Five and other projects. Also returning are David Arquette as Dewey and Courtney Cox, excuse me, Courtney Cox Arquette as Gail Weathers. The couple cut short their honeymoon to begin filming on Scream 3, and this is the first instance of Cox using her married name in the credits. Again, they've since parted on amicable terms and do remain close friends to this day. We also get Liev Schreiber back as Cotton Weary, although not for long. Sorry. Spoilers. As Scream 3 primarily concerns the making of Stab 3, we've got a lot of people playing the cast and crew of the film within the film. Lance Henriksen plays producer John Milton. Henriksen has a host of genre credits from Pumpkinhead to the TV series Millennium to Harbinger Down, but he's always going to be most indelibly associated with his role as the android bishop and his various likenesses in the Alien movies, while Scott Foley plays director Roman Bridger. He's probably best known as Noel on Felicity, but he's done a number of guest appearances and supporting roles in film and television. Matt Kiesler plays Tom Prince, who's playing Dewey Riley. All of the actors have very obvious celebrity-inspired names. Tom Prince is inspired by Freddie Prince Jr., Jennifer Jolie by Angelina Jolie, Angelina Tyler by Angelina Jolie, etc. Kiesler is probably best known for his role as the middleman in the short-lived but long-legacied series The Middleman. Dion Richman plays Tyson Fox, who we're told is playing a new character named Ricky, who's an homage to the now-dead Randy. Richmond is a hard-working day player who's probably best known for his role on The Cosby Show as Kenny, and he's underserved here much like all the black actors in the Scream series. In fact, his primary role here is to comment on how underserved black actors are by Hollywood, problem I wish they'd fixed instead of just satirizing. Emily Mortimer, aka Jane, in the recent Mary Poppins Returns, among many other things, plays Angelina Tyler, who plays Sidney Prescott, while Parker Posey plays Jennifer Jolie playing Gail Weathers. Posey was at the time a bit of a Hollywood punching bag, despite appearing in things like Waiting for Guffman and Dazed and Confused, but I think she's benefited greatly from the long lens of history when it comes to her performance. Certainly here she knows exactly what her assignment is and nails it perfectly. And of course, Jenny McCarthy, best known for the small but significant part she played in promulgating anti-vaccine panic and turning America into the plague-ridden dystopia it is in 2021, plays Sarah Darling. Rounding out the main cast, we have Patrick Dempsey and Josh Payas as Detectives Kincaid and Wallace. Dempsey is probably best known for his turn in the film Enchanted and for his 247 episodes of Grey's Anatomy, while Paeus was the voice of Raphael in the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, as well as a regular guest star in police procedurals of all shapes and sizes. And last, but certainly not least, Roger Jackson returns as one of the voices of Ghostface. Sorry, spoilers. The film opens with a shot of the Hollywood sign as seen from a traffic copter, which then segues to Cotton Weary, stuck in one of L.A.'s signature traffic jams. Cotton seems to have done rather well for himself since being anointed by Sidney as the hero of Scream 2. He's got his own nationally syndicated talk show, 100% Cotton, which is frankly a fantastic pun. And he's branching out into acting, starting with a cameo in Stab 3. There is some confusion here because he supposedly just filmed his part according to the news reports we see later, but his phone call sounds like he's negotiating salary. Possibly he's asking for a little extra to do publicity for the role. His conversation is interrupted by a call on the other line, a starstruck woman who accidentally dialed him as a wrong number, but who can't help gushing with excitement over hearing from one of her idols. Weary, who clearly doesn't mind getting his ego stroked, and possibly other things. Schreiber plays the scene very much as an entitled Hollywood star who's very used to exploiting his fans for sex, 
which is entirely in keeping with the running theme of the film, tries to keep her on the line and get her name, and she asks what his girlfriend would say. Cotton, trying to pretend he's single, asks why she thinks he has a girlfriend, and suddenly we hear the voice of Ghostface saying, Because I'm right outside her bathroom door. And just like that, we are sucked back into the terror. Ghostface demands information on Sidney Prescott's current whereabouts in exchange for Cotton's girlfriend Christine's life, and when he doesn't immediately get it, he hangs up. Cotton cuts through traffic in a harrowing and risky driving sequence. It's really impressively staged, with lots of stunt driving that involves, you know, going straight at oncoming traffic and things. It, it was very difficult. It involved some shooting on Hollywood Boulevard that was quite tricky to get permits for. Uh, all the while attempting to call Christine, the police, his agent, anyone who will listen. But 911 is busy and the phone line to his house has been cut. Christine, meanwhile, hears Cotton's voice coming from someone wearing the ghost face costume, and assumes that he's once again playing his quote-unquote stab games. So apparently he likes to do fear play with his girlfriend by posing as the slasher he killed. Now this is a kink-shame-free podcast, but she says, you know I don't like your stab games, so apparently he coerces her into doing it, which is totally fair to shame someone over. She soon realizes that it's not a game, though, and barricades herself into Cotton's office. The real Cotton, in turn, arrives home to find knife holes in the door, and breaks in only to be attacked by Christine with a golf club. The two of them circle the desk, with Christine understandably wary of her boyfriend, but just as she winds up with her back to the door, Ghostface runs down the hall and stabs her from behind. He then slashes Cotton's arm, and after a tense struggle, knocks him to the floor and kills him. If Ghostface can't get someone to tell him where Sydney is, there are other ways of getting her attention. Weirdly, the whole scene reminds me of nothing so much as the opening to Captain America Civil War. Zemo's entire goal there is to get someone to give up the footage of Bucky killing Iron Man's dad, and he's forced into ludicrous extremes because someone won't talk. Not that I think anyone over at Marvel was inspired by Scream 3, but it does turn the two movies into a bizarrely tidy double feature. After the title card, we cut to Sydney, who's now living in seclusion at an undisclosed location and working remotely for a crisis counseling hotline. It's a brief appearance, but it nicely sets up the main theme. Sydney has isolated herself because two movies worth of watching her friends die has convinced her to give up on a normal life and embrace her PTSD-induced paranoia. Presumably she has the money to do all this from the lawsuit she won against the estates of Billy, Stu, Mickey, and Mrs. Loomis? It's obviously very sad, and what's sadder is that the events of this movie make it clear that her paranoia is entirely justified. There are people after her who will do anything to find her and track her down and kill her. We then cut to Gail Weathers, giving a lecture to a class full of journalism students on the importance of determination in pursuit of the story. I mention it here for the sake of completeness only, she also has a haircut that a lot of people do not like. Many of them have focused on it to the exclusion of literally everything else that happens in the movie. I don't get it either. Just as they're getting to the Q&A and someone asks her, was it all worth it? In a way that sounds like it's going to be the setup for an and then everybody clapped meme, Gail is called away by Detective Mark Kincaid, who's there to tell her that Cotton Weary has been murdered. He wants her off-the-record expertise as the foremost authority on the Woodsboro killings, because the killer left a photo next to Cotton's body, a photo that Gail recognizes as the very young Maureen Prescott. Sydney hears about the killing on the news, and it immediately rattles her. She knows right away that it's no coincidence. But it's not enough to break her self-imposed isolation, and we soon cut to the set of Stab 3, where Roman Bridger is arguing with a studio executive, played by Hollywood legend Roger Corman, about how to handle the situation. Violence in cinema is a big deal right now, Roman, the executive says, mirroring actual conversations that were being had on the set of Scream 3 while they were shooting this scene. This is not the kind of news the studio is after. Honestly, there's almost an element of in vino veritas about this film, because everything was being written and shot so rapidly, and because the movie is so relentlessly metatextual to the point where it's literally about its own creation, you get the feeling that everyone's being a little more honest than they otherwise would be about the actual struggles they went through in production. Elsewhere on the set, the actors are sitting around speculating about the murders and what it means for their movie. 
Sarah Darling is of the opinion that they're unrelated to the production, probably someone who was antagonized by Cotton Weary's show, and that they're not in any danger. Well, Tyson points out that her character says that literally the scene before she gets killed, which is, again, just layers upon layers upon layers of metatextuality given that she's going to be the next victim. Oh, spoilers. And Angelina, who won a talent contest to be the new Sydney Prescott after Tori Spelling decided not to come back for part three, would rather see the production shut down than let someone else get hurt. Because she's authentic and genuine, unlike all these Hollywood types. Wink. Gail sneaks onto the set with a hidden camera and bumps into Jennifer Jolie, the actor playing her. Honestly, it takes all of about zero seconds for this to become an absolutely legendary frenemy dynamic. Jennifer says that she's learned so much about Gail that she feels like she's inside her mind, and Gail quickly responds with, That would explain my constant headaches. Parker Posey really gets who her character's supposed to be, and she and Cox Cat have a phenomenal chemistry. The film really makes a smart choice in pairing these two off as much as possible. But Gail's badly thrown off her insult game when it turns out that the production has hired Dewey as a consultant on the film, and that Jennifer in particular has been taking particular advantage of his presence to pump his brain for insights on her character. We don't yet get the full story on what happened between them since Scream 2, but clearly they're not on good terms and Dewey blames Gail. And he does know her better than anyone. He bought her the handbag she's hiding her camera in. She's spotted talking to him and thrown off the set, where for some reason she bumps into Jay and Silent Bob. I don't understand who thought this was a good idea, other than the obvious. The Weinsteins were the executive producers on the Scream movies, and they also cultivated relationships with indie filmmakers like Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino in order to maintain the string of successes that kept them going through most of the 90s. They probably thought that the two characters were so universally beloved that including them as studio tourgoers and giving them a bit of co comic business would be greeted with immediate acclaim, but I'll be honest, it breaks immersion, the joke isn't especially funny, and it's more of a distraction than anything else. Someone should have had the good sense to relegate this to a deleted scene gag where it belongs. That night, Sydney is visited by her dad, who is understandably worried about her in the wake of Cotton's death. He wants her to come home, but she quite sensibly isn't interested in doing that just as a new series of killings is revving up. She instead dozes fitfully on the couch after he leaves, having a nightmare where her mother comes looking for her with ominous intent. As in the previous installments, Sydney's mom and dad are played by Lynn McCree and Lawrence Hecht. Just as Maureen changes into Ghostface, Sydney wakes up, feeling the weight of her previous ordeal settling in on her. Sarah Darling arrives at the studio for a meeting with Roman, but he calls and lets her know that he's stuck in traffic and running late. He offers to run lines with her, but there are some significant differences between his copy of the script and hers. Like the fact that he starts threatening Sarah, the actor, not Candy, the character and the fact that his voice suddenly changes, just like Cotton's, just like the female fan who called Cotton, into the familiar voice of Ghostface. Because it turns out that Sarah's not there for a meeting. She's there to die. Incidentally, there's a great moment just before things go south when she thinks that the script changes are legitimate, and complains about all the new drafts floating around and making it impossible to learn lines. Again, there's a fine line between Meta and the actors are just talking about their daily lives on this production. Sarah makes a run for it, but she sees someone at the door and doubles back into the production offices. She tries to hide among a rack of ghostface costumes, but just then one of them moves. Realizing her mistake too late, she tries to fight back with the prop weapons, but unfortunately they're all fake, and even more unfortunately for her, Ghostface's knife isn't. Not to jump ahead, but I'll admit I don't know what Roman would have done if she'd just risked it and run out the door, or if she'd recognized the security officer and gotten his help. Then again, his whole goal isn't to kill, it's to create enough of a disruption to draw Sydney out of hiding to investigate. Sarah getting away and sharing her story of a threatening phone call would have achieved much the same outcome for him. Meanwhile, Dewey and Gail are having lunch together and laying out some of their frustrations with one another. Gail is upset that Dewey is treating her as just another media vulture when she was explicitly brought in by the police as an expert, 
and she's even more upset that after breaking up with her rather than leave Woodsboro, he's gone out to Hollywood to make some dough off of the same case that he's jumping on her for exploiting. Dewey, in turn, tells her that he's here because someone connected to the production tried to steal Sidney Prescott's file from the Woodboro police station, and he's investigating the attempted theft under the cover of his role as technical advisor. Their conversation is interrupted by a call from Jennifer, who urgently requests Dewey's presence at her house. Gail tags along and discovers that A. Sarah Darling is dead, B. The murders seem to be occurring in the same order as they do in the screenplay for Stab 3, which means C. Jennifer Jolie is next, because D. Gail Weathers doesn't survive the latest installment. Gail is adorably and quite understandably more ticked off at finding out that she gets killed off than anything else, until she finds out that Dewey is living in a trailer on the property because he apparently makes Jennifer feel safe. And again, anyone who thinks that Parker Posey does not 100% get the assignment needs to reckon with the moment where she physically climbs into her bodyguard's arms like Whitney Houston in The Bodyguard. It feels like she's just improvising this moment because she knows just what Jennifer would do. Speaking of said bodyguard, Stephen Stone, who's played by Patrick Warburton, speaking of actors who 100% get the assignment, he's an overconfident douchebag who wastes no time in finding an insulting nickname for Dewey, which is kind of weird because Dewey is his nickname, but they've forgotten that by this point in the movie. He's just treated as Dewey, as that's his actual name. And telling him that Stephen views him as a useless parasite who's trying to leech off of his connection to the Woodsboro murders because he can't hack it as a real cop. Which is exactly what Dewey wants everyone to think, but still, you do not insult the precious cinnamon bun of the franchise and expect to walk away unscathed. Back at the crime scene, Kincaid and his partner Wallace find another photo of Maureen, and there's some excellent banter between the two that establishes Kincaid's credentials as this movie's film-obsessed fast-talker. He points out that the clues are clearly there to toy with the cops, like in Silence of the Lambs and Seven, and Wallace says, doesn't the killer come after the cops in those movies? To which Kincaid responds, usually one cop makes it. It's a great moment, even if it is there to set up Kincaid as this movie's red herring. Don't be wrong, having red herrings is a time-honored tradition for this franchise, but Kincaid is so obviously suspicious that he paradoxically becomes safe simply by being the most boring answer to the question of the killer's identity. And unlike in the first installment, they don't do a whole lot of work in eliminating suspects, which was one of the things that made the original's ending so unpredictable. They just fall back on the old mystery trick of having a bunch of obvious suspects and one guy who blends into the background and thus has to be the killer. It reminds me of a story I heard at a convention from actor Peter Davison, who was absolutely thrilled to take a villain role in an Agatha Christie adaptation after years of playing the Fifth Doctor and Tristan in All Creatures Great and Small. On the first day of shooting, though, the director took him aside and informed him that he was literally the only one who couldn't act sinister or suspicious in any way, shape, or form, because if he did, then the audience would guess the ending. Anyway. Dewey and Gale show up and find out from Kincaid that Jennifer may not be the next target after all. There are a lot of different scripts floating around, both due to the frequent rewrites and in an effort to prevent leaks, which is a reference to Scream 2, of course. There are three potential victims, depending on which version the killer is going by. This is all a red herring, of course, because really Roman's just killing anybody and anything that he can to create disruption and terror and get Sydney out of hiding, but... It's a fun motif for the first half of the movie. Meanwhile, speaking of Roman, he is ranting about how the production shutdown is going to ruin his chances of making a serious, romantic film. Did I mention that Wes Craven's next movie was a Meryl Streep romance called Music of the Heart, which was by all accounts a quid pro quo for agreeing to make this movie? And that he performed several uncredited rewrites on screen three? At some point, this starts to feel less like metatextuality and more like stenography. Roman gets arrested after Sarah's roommate says that he was the one who called Sarah and asked her to come to the studio. Kincaid's phone dies as he's trying to make an important call, and he borrows Dewey, which is one point that does kind of bug me because it's a case of taking a red herring a bit too far. See, the next scene shows Sydney getting a threatening call from Ghostface, impersonating her mother, at her home, and the clear implication is that he pulled the number from Dewey's phone and used it to call her. 
which he didn't because he's the red herring, but they never really explain how Roman did. It's a bit of a cheat. After the aforementioned call, which leaves Sydney rattled, we then cut to Jennifer's house, where she and the surviving cast members are having an impromptu wake for their now-canceled production. Tom is drunk and nasty, especially to Angelina, which Jennifer correctly attributes to bitterness over being turned down for sex. Because again, the real villain of the Scream movies is toxic male entitlement. I would like to point out, by the way, that the scenes Tom is tearing out of his script and shredding include Maureen's murder flashback and Prescott house flashback, which explains why Sydney's house is built as a replica of its appearance in the original Scream, even though Stab 3 takes place chronologically much later. I've seen this mentioned as a plot hole, and it's very clearly not as this proves. Gail arrives and eavesdrops on Dewey and Jennifer discussing her personality flaws for a few moments before she's caught by Jennifer's bodyguard. He brings her in, and she tells them that Roman's been released after the phone records showed that he never called Sarah. The calls came from an untraceable burner phone. She also tells Dewey that the photos of Maureen come from a period in her early 20s, a time when she left Woodsboro and essentially disappeared from the lives of everybody who knew her. Dewey notices something else. One of the photos is a publicity headshot, or more accurately, a copy of a publicity headshot, from the same studio currently making, you guessed it, Stab 3. Stone goes to brush up his douchebag credentials by breaking into Dewey's trailer and stealing his loose change when he gets a call from Dewey, who says he needs to go to the police and wants Stone to come back inside. When Stone instead makes a cheap crack about Dewey's dead sister, Ghostface pops out from behind him and stabs him in the back. Turns out that the killer has Dewey's voice print too, although really you'd think Stone would have heard someone talking from behind him as well as through the phone, but Movie magic. They struggle, but Ghostface beats Stone senseless with a frying pan. He regains consciousness just long enough to stagger back to the house, collapsing dead right in front of Gale, Dewey, and the surviving cast. The reason Ghostface was trying to get him to go to the house soon becomes evident, as the power goes out and the fax machine comes to life with new pages for the script. The fax machine is powered by the phone line, not the electricity. The new pages say that the killer is outside waiting for them, ready to grant mercy only to... dot dot dot. And of course, that's all they get. Dewey and Gale quickly figure out that they're being tricked into all standing right next to the fax machine and tell everyone to get out, but Tom absolutely has to see that next page. He runs back in and reads the new page by the light of his cigarette lighter, seeing whoever smells the gas just before the entire house explodes with him inside. The others survive, but are thrown down the hill by the explosion and get separated. Dewey finds Gale just as Ghostface comes up behind her, and he fires several shots directly into the killer's chest. But Ghostface survives and runs away, disappearing into the woods. Jennifer shows up, punching Dewey in the face for protecting Gale instead of her, and Gale defends him by punching her in return. The exchange, my lawyer liked that. Not as much as I did. Is freaking iconic. And a considerable few moments after that, long enough to have changed out of a Ghostface costume, Angelina comes out of the woods. Could she be the killer? No. See my previous comments on red herrings. Oh, and Ghostface left behind another photo of Maureen. This one has writing on the back saying, I killed her with an underline under I, just in case we might have missed the important part of that three-word sentence. The next morning at the police station, Kincaid grills Gale and Dewey about the photo left at the crime scene. He wants to talk to Sidney and find out if there's anything Billy or Stu might have said that pointed to a third killer, but Dewey is very protective about Sidney and won't give out her contact information even to another law enforcement officer. Again, it's never said out loud, but Dewey couldn't be more obviously transferring his guilt over Tatum's death into a determination to keep Sidney safe. Also, incidentally, the fluorescent lighting at the police station makes this one of the scenes where it's really obvious that both Courtney Cox Arquette and David Arquette have a deep tan from their honeymoon that the makeup artists are doing their level best to conceal. It does not work. <laughs> The discussion quickly escalates into a confrontation, with Kincaid threatening to charge Dewey with obstruction of justice if he doesn't give them a way to get in touch with Sidney immediately. Again, this is meant to be highly suspicious, since the one thing we know about the killer is that he's trying to find Sidney, and all of this is just his way of drawing her out of hiding, 
but Kincaid is so obviously suspicious that he clearly didn't do it. Nonetheless, he convinces Dewey to call Sydney, but just as he gets her voicemail again, she walks right through the front door of the police station. And while I would have loved more Nev Campbell in this movie, I gotta say, structurally, if you've only got 20 shooting days with her, this is a really strong way to handle that particular problem. Making her return a big mid-movie moment like this gives a lot of momentum as the film heads into the third act, and it really makes the reunion between Sidney Gale and Dewey feel sweet and affecting, because we've seen them spend almost half the film apart. Sidney's entrance into the story feels like a big rock star moment, and I love that about it. Sidney explains to Dewey that she's there because the killer contacted her at her house. She knows that he's getting closer to her, and she'd rather be out among friends doing something proactive to catch him than waiting for him to finally find her. They figure out that Ghostface must have gotten the number off of Dewey's phone. There's a great gag where Gail asks if her number is stored in his memory, and Arquette looks up as if trying to recall it. And he says that only two people used it apart from him, Jennifer and Kincaid. Which I guess means that we're supposed to infer that Jennifer found it and copied it for her own purposes, and that Roman somehow got it from Jennifer sometime coincidentally after Kincaid borrowed Dewey's phone? As with two, there are a few plot points that are a little bit sloppy. But it's a relatively minor issue. Sydney finds out about the publicity photos left by the bodies and decides to go to the studio to see for herself. When they get there, they're surprised to bump into Martha Meeks, Randy's little sister, who's apparently come up from Woodsboro looking for them with a videotape that Randy left in the event of his death. Well, his death and another series of murders popping up, presumably. Otherwise, there would have been a fairly awkward moment at his funeral. Randy's got a few special rules about trilogies. To wit, one, the killer will be supernatural and unkillable. Two, not even the main characters are safe. And three, it's always connected to the past everyone thought was long buried. All of which we kind of already knew at this point. Honestly, I'm of two minds on this scene. On the one hand, I really feel like it's unnecessary and contrived. Just thinking about what must have gone into Martha coming up from Woodsboro to Hollywood at age 17 and getting onto a closed set in the middle of a killing spree just to deliver a tape that she really could have mailed to Dewey, it's frankly an exhausting exercise. And the tape doesn't really contain anything except for another one of Randy's horror movie rules speeches, which don't really work as well in the sequels because they're not setting up expectations for the story to subvert. They're just saying, hey, here's what this kind of movie is usually like. There's no information here we don't already know, and if this scene had hit the cutting room floor, we literally wouldn't miss it. That said, there is something surprisingly effective about the last few moments when Randy tells them all that if they're watching this, he didn't make it, and he expects some of the people in the room to join him soon. It's bittersweet to see him again, and it's a moving way to close out Jamie Kennedy's association with the series. Plus, Heather Matarazzo, who you may recognize from The Princess Diaries, does a nice job of conveying exactly the sort of person who's lived in the shadow of her boisterous, extroverted big brother all her life. If I was an editor... I would have been pretty ruthless with this scene, but it's not without its charms. Gail splits off from the others because she, quote, works better alone, unquote, got laughed, <laughs> to go take a look at the studio archives and see if she can find the original photos that the killer copied. But she's unexpectedly joined by Jennifer Jolie. Because as Jennifer puts it, here's how I see it. I've got no house, no bodyguard, no movie, and I'm being stalked. Because someone wants to kill me? No, because someone wants to kill you. So now, starting now, I go where you go. That way, if someone wants to kill me, I'll be with you. And since they really want to kill you, they won't kill me, they'll kill you. Make sense? Again, not only does Parker Posey know exactly what kind of role she's there for, but she and Cox Arquette have an amazing chemistry here as they transition seamlessly from frenemies into a mystery-solving double act. Honestly, if they hadn't killed off Jennifer, sorry, spoilers, I could 100% see a spin-off series where the two of them fight crime, and I would pay for every single installment. The archivist turns out to be a woman with an uncanny resemblance to Carrie Fisher, and while I know I complained about the Jay and Silent Bob thing, that was because the bit wasn't funny. 
Here it is absolutely hilarious to see Carrie Fisher play a bitter failed actor who complains about constantly being mistaken for a celebrity who only got the Princess Leia part because she slept with George Lucas, all delivered with a deadpan sincerity that utterly slays. Again, this is also important to the subtext of the movie, which is that Hollywood producers wield their power as a weapon to get sex out of women. Carrie Fisher was so brilliant. She's brilliant here, she's brilliant in everything, and I'm so glad that at least a little bit of her mordant wit was immortalized on screen, because you know she wrote her own dialogue here. She was one of the foremost script doctors in Hollywood making a cameo on a troubled project. Why wouldn't she? Jennifer bribes the archivist, mocking Gail's lowball effort in the process, into showing them the file on Rena Reynolds, a day player who had a few parts in some of John Milton's productions in the 70s before she dropped out of acting, and who was actually Maureen Roberts, later Maureen Prescott. Nobody knew about the connection between her stage name and her real name, so they didn't know to look for this information, but not Carrie Fisher never forgets a face. Or a real name, as she reminds Judy Jurgenstern, a.k.a. Jennifer Jolie. Armed with this new information, Gail and Jennifer had to talk to John Milton. Sidney, meanwhile, goes to the bathroom to freshen up and discovers Angelina hiding in one of the stalls with a ghost face mask. But it turns out she's just stealing some props from the set to commemorate her brief time as a genuine Hollywood actor. Or so she says. Honestly, she makes for a better red herring than Kincaid, because at least there's some shock factor in finding out that she'd be the killer. She's especially good at being a red herring because she leaves behind her hairbrush as she darts off and completely disappears, which lures Sydney out onto the darkened, abandoned set to track her down and return it. This whole sequence was apparently conceived during filming by Wes Craven, who knew he wanted to work in a return to Woodsboro, at least in a thematic sense, even though the proposed idea for the third movie was entirely ch chucked out, and he had them build these sets before he even knew what to do with them. And I gotta say, if you ever want to know why Wes Craven is revered as a true legendary director of the genre, this sequence is Exhibit A. It's tense. It's taut. It's a perfect encapsulation of the metatextual horror that the franchise does so well. Sydney is literally being stalked through a fake version of her own real life, experiencing genuine threat and terror on a soundstage mockery of her family home, and it was all basically improvised. God, he's good. It also has to be improvised on Roman's part, since Sidney is basically a target of opportunity at this point. It does make sense that he would go after her as soon as he knew she was around, plan or no plan. He hates her. And most of it feels convincingly impromptu, save for the bit at the end where he speaks to her in her mother's voice and covers himself in the bloody sheet. That feels more like something he'd been planning for a while, part of his grand scheme to gaslight Sydney into thinking she was hallucinating, so she would be a more convincing suspect after he framed her. But it's possible that he had a recording of that ready to go and just played it right at the end when he knew it wasn't going to have time to finish her off. And you don't actually see him rise up off the floor wearing the sheet, which makes the whole thing a little less contrived. Sydney jumps out the window to get away from him, drawing the attention of Dewey and the cops, but the killer's vanished, and Sydney hasn't done herself any favors by talking about seeing and hearing her dead mom. Dewey believes her, and Kincaid brings her back to the station to protect her, but it certainly seems like she's being treated with a remarkable lack of respect for her credibility, given that we know there's a real murderer out there who has threatened her life. Although, again, the cruelty of not believing victims is a major part of this movie's subtext. There is so much anger bubbling under the surface in Scream 3 at the Hollywood system, and the way it protects predators, and I have to imagine that at least some of this was Wes Craven railing at the people he had to work with. Everyone who collaborated with him talks to this day about what a kind soul he was, and I suspect he had a lot of empathy for the women who were exploited in the movie industry. This is his way of saying what he really thinks. In a way that, you know, he can still get out through the Hollywood system. Speaking of, it's time to get to the emotional heart of this film. Gail and Jennifer meet up with Dewey, and they go to confront John Milton, who's in the middle of a conversation with Roman about the failure of Stab 3 and its effect on Roman's career. 
This is an especially interesting moment to me because Roman's petulant, selfish little tantrum seems utterly genuine and legitimate. He's not doing this as a bit to establish his alibi. He's really angry that his own killing spree has had even the slightest degree of personal and professional consequences for him. His whole motive, as we'll later discover, is a sense of entitlement to the fame that Sidney has for her status as survivor of two mass murders, and yet he's literally tanked his own promising career to get what she has, and he refuses to accept the blame for any of it. Because again, the real villain of the Scream series is male entitlement. And speaking of, I'm, I'm sorry, there's just so much going on in this scene that you almost have to take it in bite-sized chunks. First, Milton's response is to reassure him by saying, Hollywood is full of criminals whose careers are flourishing, which feels almost too on the nose until you remember that this movie came out a full 17 years before the Me Too movement put Harvey Weinstein squarely in the crosshairs for his sexually predatory behavior. I'm not saying it's the only thing I'd do with time travel, but I absolutely would love to go back to 1999 and watch his reaction to seeing the dailies for this particular moment. And second, wow. Lance Henriksen's dialogue feels more relevant than ever. After he's confronted by Dewey, Gail, and Jennifer, and shoes Roman out of the room so he can level with them privately, well, semi-privately, you know Gail notices that he never says any of this is off the record, we get a series of justifications that sound like they could be coming straight from real life. It was in the 70s. Everything was different. People still say that today about confessed rapist Roman Polanski. And yes, it just now hit me. Oh, that's why this is named. he's named Roman. Ouch. Wes Craven pulls no fucking punches here. Nothing happened to her that she didn't invite in one way or another, no matter what she said afterwards. That right there is the defense in the Cosby case, the Weinstein case, literally hundreds of thousands of other rape and sexual assault cases. She just regretted it afterwards and she's trying to make trouble. That is the bullshit. You want to get ahead in Hollywood? You gotta play the game or go home. It's what every sleazebag producer and executive tells themselves, never admitting that they're the ones that make the rules of that particular game. Maureen Roberts was raped by John Milton's powerful friends. That's what set all of this into motion. Her hypersexuality later in life was an attempt to reassert control over her own body and her own boundaries to prove that she couldn't have been traumatized by her rape because sex didn't terrify or repulse her. Everything that happened to Maureen and everything it led to with Billy and Stu and all their successors in the Ghostface identity and all 40 murders in the Scream franchise today, it all happened because a bunch of men felt entitled to a woman's body and didn't care who they hurt. Because they were rich and consequences were for other people. And not to vague tweet here about other podcasts, but if you're someone who jokes about Maureen Prescott being the real villain of the franchise, you probably need to ask yourself why you don't see her as the real victim of the franchise instead. Back at the police station, Kincaid and Sidney chat about his interest in movies, and he polishes his credentials as the obvious suspect to a brilliant mirror-bright sheen. Incidentally, this is also a good opportunity to mention that Sidney still wears the Greek letters that Derek gave her in part two. You can see them very clearly in this scene. It also tries to establish a romantic chemistry between Kincaid and Sidney, which is a little weird given their obvious age difference. Sidney can't be more than 22 or 23 here, and Kincaid looks to be in his early to mid-30s, but that's one conversation about Hollywood that the Scream series maybe isn't ready to have just yet. That evening, Gail, Dewey, and Jennifer head back to the station, but they're interrupted by a call from Sidney. She says she's going with Kincaid to meet John Milton at his mansion, where he's holding a birthday party for Roman with the surviving cast members, and she wants the three of them there. But we already know that Kincaid has left Sydney at the station, and that whoever this new ghost face is, he's got the ability to fake more than just the official ghost face voice. And yes, this is pretty much a sci-fi piece of technology I don't mind because it's established so early in the film and used pretty consistently, and because at least in principle you can understand how Roman got all those voices, given that he only samples people who have appeared on film or television. So this is basically a trap. When they arrive, Tyson, Angelina, and Roman are all drinking and having what looks to be a frankly miserable time. 
Angelina mentions the rumors that there are hidden party rooms with secret entrances where Milton's rich friends could go and have sex and do drugs in private. And oh man, just the symbolism in the name John Milton alone, the reference to the most epic work of Satan fanfic in the English language, could keep a lit crit major in paper topics for a month. Roman decides to go looking for it, leading to Tyson's best line in the movie. Whoa, 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 wait just one damn minute. There's a psycho killer on the loose and you want to go traipsing around this gigantic mansion? Have you ever actually seen the Stab movies? Every time this dude, and he points to Dewey, enters a room, he ends up a goddamn shish kebab. Which is true, but come on, you don't have to say it. Nonetheless, the cast splits up into pairs to look around, with Roman even going so far as to say, we'll be right back, to Dewey and Gale, who choose to stay where they are. Which is a nice touch, because that line in the Scream series is said not by victims, but by killers. He goes down in the basement, leaving Jennifer at the top of the stairs to call out to him as he goes ominously silent. Gale and Dewey start to suspect that something's up with Sydney's absence, and they call the number that called them, only to hear a phone ringing from the closet. Inside, they find the voice changer with all their voice prints, the ghost face costume, and a cell phone, and immediately put two and two together. They split up to find everyone and gather them back together in the main room, but it looks like it's too late for Roman. Gale finds him in a prop coffin with a knife in his chest. Many people have pointed out that she checks Roman's pulse here, but he could be wearing an appliance of some sort to trick any efforts to find vital signs. Or Gale could just be bad at checking for a pulse. It's not as easy as the movies make it out to be. I tried two or three times while I was doing my show notes, and I was like, nope. I have no idea what I'm even looking for. And certainly it would have been embarrassing if they'd found him after calling an ambulance or the police or something, but Roman could always play it off as a drunken prank if he was caught at this stage. Nobody's been murdered yet, and John Milton is safely bound and gagged in one of the hidden rooms. Well, spoilers. There's no actual law against being an asshole to your friends and playing pranks. Certainly this relies on a bit of luck on his part to come out the way it does, but it's not absurd. Gale finds Jennifer, who already found the body and hid in a closet to avoid being discovered by the killer. They go upstairs and find Angelina, whose response to finding out that Roman is dead is to ditch Gale and Jennifer in hopes the killer gets them instead of her. Oh, and it also turns out that Milton coerced sexual favors out of her to give her the part of Sydney. One thing I will say I'm not a fan of is the way that this revelation comes out at the same time we learn that she's not the shy, polite ingenue she pretended to be. It makes it feel a little too much like victim-blaming. In any event, she's stabbed and killed by Ghostface just seconds later. He then goes after the others, slicing Dewey's arm and stabbing Tyson in the stomach, then chasing down the film's only black character and brutally beating him before throwing him out the window to land next to the pool. The franchise's excellent track record with race relations continues. Jennifer flees into a secret passage Angelina found in order to get away, but Ghostface pursues her and she winds up on the opposite side of the one-way mirrors that look into the guest bedroom where Dewey and Gale are recovering from their wounds. She reveals just before she dies that her death was supposed to be a fake-out and that Gale Weathers was the killer, not the victim in Stab 3, but unfortunately that doesn't give her any kind of solidarity with this Ghostface. He stabs her and throws her through the mirror. I choose to believe that she survived. That's my headcanon. Gale and Dewey make a run for it, but Ghostface grabs Gale and they struggle on the stairs leading down to the basement. They fall, with Gale landing on top of Ghostface, which knocks him out for a moment, but just when we think we're going to get a reprise of the sneaking past the unconscious killer scene from Scream 2, she decides to use her phone instead to call Dewey for help. He shows up just as Ghostface recovers, gets knocked out for his troubles, and Gale gets captured when she goes to check on him. But these two he doesn't kill. He brought them to the party in the first place to lure Sydney away from the police station, and they're much more useful as hostages than victims. He calls Sydney and tells her to follow his instructions if she wants to keep Dewey and Gale alive, and she takes Kincaid's car to head to a location he'll provide once she's en route. Milton's mansion, obviously, but I like that Roman is being cautious and cutting Sydney off from any possible reinforcements. He's a smart killer, which makes Sydney look smarter when she outwits him at the end. Before she leaves, she rummages around to find anything she can use to protect herself, and finds a small snub-nosed pistol that she pockets. When she arrives at the mansion, though, there's a metal detector wand next to Tyson's corpse, and she gets a call instructing her to scan herself with it. 
it finds the gun in her boot, which Ghostface forces her to throw in the pool before she's allowed to enter. Inside, she finds Dewey and Gale tied up, and Ghostface attempts to ambush her when she goes to rescue them, but it turns out that she stashed Kincaid's gun right on top of her own, and she puts five bullets right into his chest. I love the subtle detail here in Sydney's technique. She's clearly spent some time on a firing range since Scream 2 practicing marksmanship. She doesn't shoot like a character in an action movie. She puts both hands on the gun, absorbs the recoil with her stance, aims for center mass, and takes it very seriously. It's a really nice character and world-building moment. She then goes back to untie her friends, but the killer disappears while her back is turned. Sadly, they had to cut a line where Ghostface says, Turning your back on the killer is as good as CPR, Sydney. Uh, it, it is a bit too on the nose, but it, it's also a great line. Sydney draws her gun again, but just then Kincaid shows up with an unconvincing explanation of his presence. He just happened to remember hearing about the party from Tyson and decides to check it out. And a suspicious demeanor as he tries to convince Sydney to lower her weapon. But of course, he's not the killer, as we've been saying this whole time. And when Ghostface shows up behind her, he shoves her out of the way and takes the stab wound himself on the shoulder. They struggle, and Kincaid gets knocked out just as Sydney uses her last shot, firing and missing at the killer. With no other way to protect her friends, Sydney runs to lure Ghostface away. She locks herself in a reading room and discovers a fake bookshelf leading to the hidden screening room mentioned earlier, where films of Maureen Prescott, clearly taken without her knowledge by a handheld camera, are playing. And Maureen herself, still hidden by the bloody sheet, emerges from another entrance to ask Sydney if she'd like to be held one last time. Also, this is going to be my last chance to mention that Lynn McCree is very clearly doing her impression of Betsy Palmer in the original Friday the 13th, and it's fabulous. Of course, it's Ghostface under the sheet, and he has a remote control that locks all the doors from the inside, which he must have gotten from Milton, and which is terrifyingly reminiscent of the stories of Matt Lauer's offices and the way he trapped women with him before sexually assaulting them. And underneath the costume, he's got on a bulletproof vest. They don't work as well in real life as they do in the movies, but I'm willing to forgive that. He would have several broken ribs, probably some internal bleeding. You don't take six shots to the chest without really feeling it. And he's secretly Sidney's brother, the product of Maureen's rape at John Milton's party back in the 70s. And oh yeah, he's secretly Roman Bridger. A brief word, the timeline here does not work at all. He says he tried to get Maureen to acknowledge him as her son four years ago, but we know that Maureen's murder took place a year before the original Scream, and Scream 2 took place two years after that. Even with an extremely accelerated production pace, there's no way they'd be starting production on Stab 3 just a year after Stab 1 was released, and that assumes that Billy and Stu hatched their plans to murder Maureen immediately on discovering her affair. Since canonically, Scream 3 takes place three years after Scream 2, I'd say we're more likely looking at between six and seven years since Roman first set events into motion, which probably would have been while he was in film school? That makes sense, honestly. Lots of people began investigating their birth parents around that age. Roman tells Sidney that he was the one who told Billy about the affair that destroyed the Loomis's marriage and gave them tips based on his knowledge of film to help them get away with the murder, leading to probably the best line of the movie, I'm a director, Sid. I direct. But when Sidney wound up becoming famous for surviving Billy and Stu's attacks, he became jealous of her quote-unquote success and wanted what she had, which is very reminiscent of Cotton's reaction in Scream 2, and foreshadows events in Scream 4, but, um, spoilers. Point is, is that Sydney is often viewed by people who didn't go through this experience as a celebrity when, in fact, she is traumatized. He's decided to frame Sydney for the murders, using her voice print to leave threatening messages on Milton's voicemail and staging the crime scene so that it looks like she snapped on finding out what happened to her mother. Roman produces Milton from a closet, bound and gagged, and peels the tape from his mouth long enough for him to beg for mercy. The producer offers him everything he could ask for. His own movie, script approval, even final cut. But Roman snarls, I already have that, before slitting Milton's throat and dropping him to the floor. He then lays out her motives, the narrative of Roman's very own movie in which she's the villain and he's the sole survivor 
and tells her, You're going to pay for the life you stole from me, Sid. For the mother, and for the family, and for the stardom, and goddammit, everything you have that should have been mine. And Sidney's response is fucking gorgeous. God, why don't you stop your whining and get on with it? I've heard this shit before. You know why you kill people, Roman, do you? Because you choose to. There is no one else to blame. It's the ultimate puncturing of entitled male victimhood. A great big middle finger to look what you made me do. Delivered as Roman literally screams, shut up, shut up, shut up at her. They shout, fuck you, at each other one last time and get down to fighting for their lives. Now, Sydney's not entirely alone. Dewey and Gale have gotten free, and Dewey's taken Kincaid's gun, but they don't know how to get into the hidden room. She's got to handle this for herself, at least for the moment, and she gives as good as she gets. Honestly, this is a really intense fight scene, very visceral and raw and real, with punches and kicks that feel brutal. And it's genuinely terrifying when Roman gets his hand around Sydney's neck and begins to strangle her. But just as it looks like she might be about to pass out, Dewey figures out a way to short-circuit the power, and Kincaid comes in through one of the now-unlocked doors with his spare gun. Roman lets Sydney drop to deal with the other threat. He conceals himself, then knocks Kincaid out from behind. Just as he grabs Kincaid's gun, Sydney stands up with Roman's knife, and he shoots her right in the chest. It's an almost alchemical transformation, Sidney taking on the aspects of the killer as Roman adopts the identity of the hero that he's craved so badly, and it not just subverts but literally inverts the traditional horror narrative of the male slasher and the quote-unquote final girl. It's so clever and so subtly done that it connects on a purely intuitive level without any exposition to adorn it, and I love it so much. But Roman's forgotten the single most important rule for surviving a horror movie if you're going to be a hero. Never turn your back on the killer. He glances away for just a moment to look for Gale and Dewey, and when he looks back, Sydney's vanished. And everything he's planned relies on her death. He starts looking around for her, and I love that this scene was originally shot from Sydney's POV as she hid from him, but Craven realized during filming that in fact it's Sydney who's now the slasher, and he reshot it to follow Roman in his desperate search for the person he knows is hunting him. He pulls out his phone, planning to dial her up and use her ringtone to give away her location, but he realizes just as he's about to press send that Sydney had the exact same idea a few seconds before he did. His phone rings, and Sidney pops up from behind the bar with an ice pick and stabs him in the back of the neck. Apparently that's a real scream from Scott Foley that the prop weapon penetrated the skin. Ouch. Meaning this is two actors, counting Skeet Ulrich, Nev Campbell accidentally inflicted real pain on during a fight scene. I obviously don't want to see anyone hurt, but that feels oddly and weirdly appropriate for this franchise. As Roman lies bleeding, she reveals the bulletproof vest that she took out of the police station. Turns out the phone trick wasn't the only way they thought alike. He tells her it doesn't matter because he still killed Maureen. He still got to make his movie. And Sidney responds by stabbing him right through the heart. She holds his hand as he dies, and Dewey says, Be careful, Sid. Randy says the killer's always superhuman. She looks down at him one last time and mocks at me, saying, Yeah, well... He wasn't superhuman, Dewey. He wasn't superhuman at all. And then Roman gets up and charges one last time before Dewey shoots him in the head, because this is a Scream movie in its tradition. But honestly, I think it would have been more powerful to subvert that last scare by showing that, no, this isn't somebody special. This is just another entitled dude who thinks he deserves everything he wants. I, I would have liked that. It's still a nice moment, especially when Sidney has to remind Dewey not to shoot him right in the bulletproof vest again. Sometime later, they're all gathered together back at Sidney's house. Dewey proposes to Gale, which is a very sweet moment that probably isn't strictly necessary, but who cares? It's so sweet. And Sidney's finally able to relax enough to leave her door unlocked. The three of them, and Detective Kincaid, which feels so very odd in retrospect, but at the time was seen very much as a happy romantic ending after Sidney went through first boyfriend evil, second boyfriend killed, go to watch a movie for a change, rather than live one out. 
And at least for a while, for a decade or so, it's finally over. And will I hang on to this movie? Without question. This is a film that's aged remarkably well, becoming only more and more relevant over the years as the ugly politics that were going on behind the scenes of its production came out into the open and the layers of deeper commentary became more obvious. Incidentally, I'd like to thank Jordan Cruciola and Sam Weinman at the Austerian podcast, whose excellent treatment of Scream 3 was really kind of my introduction to the ways this movie is being reevaluated in light of the Weinstein scandals and the Me Too movement. I feel like in some ways this is the one that's most personal for Wes Craven, and I'm happy to have it on my shelf. And if you want to talk about Wes Craven, the Weinsteins, or anything else that came out on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at, at @halfhorror and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as at @halfpricehorror. You can also support the show at patreon.com/halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, well, I thought we were safe to get back to screaming, but when you know it, all that noise has attracted another gang of alien monsters, and I guess we're going to have to go right back to a quiet place. Part two this time. See you then.